Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on what is actually quite a miserable day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Jake Carrier. Jake is the Managing Director of Food Attraction Limited, an award-winning manufacturer of products for high street restaurant chains, airlines, railways and hotels. Jake, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Good afternoon, Scott. It certainly is a bleak day, isn't it? Uh, it certainly is. Now, um, this podcast, first and foremost, and the purpose of it is to really get your take on the topic of leadership. But what does that word leader actually mean to you personally, first and foremost, Jake? Well, we're a family business. Um, we're owned by myself, a brother and my wife. So I started the business because I have certain dreams and aspirations and I guess for me, being a leader is uh, getting my team to follow the dreams and aspirations that I have and utilizing their skills to be able to deliver on the objectives that the business needs to achieve the goals that we set it at the beginning of the year. And um, if you were to describe um, your own sort of leadership style, how would you describe that? Um, I'm very much involved in the business. Um, I've always been of the mantra uh, to get people to work because they want to work, not because they have to work, mm. not because they're under any element of duress or anything like that. Um, I want them to work from their heart. And I know that might sound a bit romantic, um, but if I can engage people's minds and engage people's passion for the business and share my vision and share my passion for the business, it just makes that whole job and that whole process so much easier. Mm. Because whereas as an employee or as a leader, I think you can learn an awful lot in terms of skills. I think passion drive, self-motivation, those are the sorts of things that I think you have to sort of draw from within, aren't they? They are, but people take inspiration from the leaders that they see around them. Mm. Um, I've been I've been around for a few years now, uh, and I've worked with some very inspirational leaders. I don't think I've ever been on a training course or anything like that in there. I've just seen uh, other business people that have gone out there that want to achieve their, their goals and will do whatever it takes. Look, if you working for an independent business like ours, um, the buck stops with me, and I have to do what I have to do to make sure that the business survives, the business grows, and at the end of the month we've got enough money to pay all the staff wages. Um, so people see how quickly I move within the business, and they understand that that's the style that they have to adopt within the business as well. And it's not that we want to create clones; everybody brings their own part to the business um, in there. But the one part that they do have to understand is that this is where the business needs to be. This is what the business needs to do to survive. Um, and and we're going to achieve that by working together and delivering on these outputs. And you find, um, especially that during times of uh, difficulty, especially with the current situation with COVID-19, that um, they do bring out the best in people, don't they? When people are thrust out of their comfort zone and forced to essentially work for the uh, success and survival of a business. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I mean, obviously... The position that we're in at the moment, and I've lived through 9/11, I've lived through two recessions now, uh, in there, and and you sort of see you see how people react, and it absolutely brings out the best and the worst. And I take it personally that I need to see the best in people, not the worst in people, because if I find that that there are people that aren't going to work the way that I would have continued to work in there, then that's a failing on my part because I haven't then taken along taken them along on the journey that I set out um, to travel on. And you made a certainly. Sorry, Scott. No, no, it's fine. No, do carry on, Jake. 
No, I mean, we, we, we lead very much from the front. The, the three owners are in the business every single day. Um, we're, we're in the front line. We have a completely open plan office. So there are no individual hubs or offices um, in there. And we work mutually together on that basis. We breakfast together quite often. We lunch together once a week. So the, the, there isn't those sorts of levels of hierarchy and that kind of segregation within the business. And, 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 and that's how a lot of my team feel engaged uh, with the work that we do. And that's worked very, very well for me. We've grown exponentially over the last few years. Um, we've made some great investments recently. Um, we're in a lot of the high street brands and stuff. And that, for a small company like ours, to have penetrated that sector, I think we've done really, really well. And that's come off the back of the people that I have within the business. There's a lot of merit, isn't there, in maintaining that community feel, as it were, that sort of close-knit relationship, not just with other leaders in the business, but also employees. And I think it ties into a very key word that leaders do have to have, and that's humility, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I would think nothing of going upstairs to make teas and coffees for my staff. Um, we, we take food in on a regular basis, or, or one of us will go in and, and cook for somebody, or if we've made extra food at the weekend, we'll bring it in, and we'll all sit there and eat together. So we all we all work as one big family. In fact, we actually won Amazon Family Business of the Year awards um, because of the way that we work. Um, and I think and I think that's what kept us sane and working well through this horrid uh, COVID nineteen situation that we've got. Um, we're ringing around each other to make sure we're okay. I've got certain members of staff that are house sharing, but are on their own in the house, don't have family around them. So we're all taking it in turns to make sure that we're ringing these guys to make sure that they're all okay, that they're, that they're still sane going through all of it. And they have absolutely appreciated it. Um, and, and then I've had other, other people that although they're working from home, I think I've actually seen them work harder working from home than when they're in the office. So it's been good. There have been some remarkable stories, haven't there, of um, employees that have been forced to uh, work remotely and have um, done so without complaints. And that goes not just for those working from home, but also those that have had to continue going into work on site um, as well. Um, One key point that you did mention um, earlier on, Jake, was um, that the importance of leaders being able to inspire other people. Are there any examples of people who you've worked with or worked for that have maybe been an inspiration to you throughout your life and your career? I think probably two aspects of it. One aspect would be when I was when I was in my late teens, I worked as a waiter uh, at a Pizza Hut restaurant, and actually working as a waiter and showing that actually if you give great customer service, you'll get a tip at the end of uh, that person's dining experience. Um, I got to a point in my teens where I was actually earning more money in tips than I was in wages um, in there, and you, that helped helped um, uh, um, lament and cement rather. Um, the fact that if you looked after people and you gave good customer service, you were taken care of. Um, and then actually, I worked in a state agency for a while. I worked for a small business uh, there, uh, a guy called Mike McConville, um, and actually working alongside him and watching what he had to do to make sure that the business survived and the business worked and the communication within the business. Um, yeah, I would certainly say that that was, that was hugely inspirational and someone I've still kept in contact with you know, 25 years down the line. So. And do you think, Jake, that we recognise and indeed celebrate good leadership, especially in the business environment, as much as perhaps we should do in this country? The reason I ask that question is because I think there is a temptation, especially these days, to think of leadership as being celebrity or sports personalities or politicians, for example. I I, I don't think we do enough. Um, 
I mean, within within Leicester over here, I've gotten organised with the, the local university, Montfort University, um, and I've just started a position on their advisory board with a view that as a business leader over here, I want to engage the students uh, within the university so that they come into the industries that we're already working in. So that actually when we when we have homegrown students, they actually stay within the Leicester area because actually, you know what, from a, from a, from a, um, uh, a financial point of view, from a cultural point of view, some people unfortunately have to stay within the city that they've actually grown up in. Um, and by helping engage them into into the industry locally, hopefully we can inspire them to follow the jobs that we actually have vacancies for so they can then stay at home and we can actually start to fill positions with people that will last much longer in that role. Mm. So considering that you're looking to actively engage um, the younger generation, um, if you were to give some advice to that next generation of emerging leaders, Jake, what advice would you go about giving them? I think I think that they've got to go in and they've got to work under some strong people. And it might be that, that actually the way that some of these other people work might not be compatible with the way that they've grown up. But actually, they have to be the sum of the parts of people around them. Um, and the more people that they're exposed to, the more skills that they can pick up from it. Because at the end of the day, I think you can pick up certain skills from training courses and things like that. But to be a leader... I think that's something that's got to be an inherent part of you and a desire and a passion to lead um, in there. And I think that comes from watching other inspirational people around you, learning from these guys, and then using those skills um, adequately. I mean, I, I've read a lot of autobiographies um, from, from inspirational leaders, and there are bits and pieces that you pick up from those autobiographies that you think, actually, do you know what? Maybe I should try that within my business. And a lot of them come, come as behavioral traits. Um, and it's those behavioural traits that you only pick up by actually watching other people and learning from other people. Mm. And do you think that um, it's possible to really be a good leader without trying new things, maybe getting one or two things wrong and learning from mistakes as well? Yeah, that, that's certainly how I've learned. Um, I wasn't, I, 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 although I did um, lead my management when I was very young, um, I don't think that set me up probably adequately for the skills that I have now. I think now uh, it's been through years of, um, years of, I guess, failing and learning from those failures and making sure that I don't make those same mistakes again. Um, certainly with this, with this COVID-19 situation, we actually put measures in place I think 10 or 12 days before the lockdown even started. Um, and where the government was having its COVID meetings, we were having our own internal Viper meetings as we called them, um, where we had a round table with uh, the senior management within the business to put steps in place to make sure that our staff were safeguarded, to make sure that the factory itself was safe, safeguarded as well by splitting shifts, by including, uh, by introducing extra PPE within to the business um, and to make sure that we could, that we could continue in there. And do you think at the moment there is an important um, issue in the business world that is not being talked about in the mainstream? Um, yeah, I think there is a lot of issues with succession planning in, 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 in businesses at the moment. Um, I think, I think we could all do with, um, increasing the skill level that we have within the business with regards to development, with regards to bringing new people into the business and actually training them up to be, uh, the leaders of tomorrow. 
And I think if we do think about the future um, as well, Jake, before we do uh, go about wrapping things up today, um, do tell me what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for the business and what you really hope to achieve collectively at Food Attraction within that time, particularly in navigating the current situation that we find ourselves in at the moment and then also in emerging from the other side of the pandemic as well. I think in business, you get faced with curveballs on a regular basis. Um, that said, I think I think COVID nineteen is 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 pretty much a ninety degree turn. It's not even a curveball. Um, I think. Look, I think I think people are still going to eat. I think obesity is still going to be an epidemic. Um, I think I think people are people aren't going to starve after this. But I think people's eating habits and buying habits are going to change quite considerably. Um, and for any business to succeed through it, which I hope my business does, you, you've got to listen to the market. You've got to listen to the way that people are going to be buying, the way that people you anticipate will be behaving the other side of all of this and put the measures in place that you can actually uh, support that market and actually supply into that market as well. Um, I think online is going to become quite considerable. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how restaurants and hotels are going, to, are going to survive through all this. And then I think the whole landscape of, of the businesses that will be out there will be very different as well. Um, so I think there's an element of being risk averse, but I think there's an element of also being a bit more braver um, and and speculating into new areas. And if you look at the way that things like Uber or, and um, and uh, Just Eat and Deliveroo have changed the way that people buy certain items or, or, or book certain services, I think food's going to go the same way. Um, and, and I think we just need to make it more available, easily accessible, and actually learn from what we've faced through COVID-19. I think you're absolutely right there, Jake. Um, it certainly is changing times uh, for business, especially in this market. And I think a business also has to innovate to be able to seize upon the opportunities that will come about, because as the market changes, there will, of course, be opportunities that businesses can cash in on. What I also think, Jake, would be brilliant for the listeners is um, if in a few months' time, once we start to get an idea of how the market is uh, starting to alter, if we could perhaps even have you back on the air with us just to look at this retrospectively, see how things have changed, and maybe also catch up on how the business is doing. But I have to say today, it's been really enjoyable, an absolute pleasure, and also thoroughly insightful having you on the programme. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. Thank you very much, Scott. I've really enjoyed it, Jake. Thank you. That was Jake Carrier of uh, Food Attraction Limited. And coming up next on today's programme, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course, the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett is one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and having served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. I hope you enjoyed listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett, and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the 
government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively and i hope that the leaders council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common a synergy in terms of what they're delivering whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever uh, will be able to see that there's a a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better linking with people not just geographically locally but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? 
Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 
uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the 
profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something 
took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just the national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. 
this obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them and sadly that will involve business closures it's why the chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of june mm-hmm. but unless we we get things moving in june i think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so i very much if i were in government and i always think of things in that context what would i do if i were in government i would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare Mm. uh, where it neither represented a a, a credible opposition nor uh, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, 
confident and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, in historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, 
he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.